0: Welcome to Pieces of Art, a podcast about ancient art, modern art, and everything in between. In this episode, snakes! Because I like snakes, always have. Before you ask, no, the Pottermore quiz did not place me in Slytherin, but a lot of my friends are. Snakes often get a bad reputation. Every time someone tells me they're afraid of snakes, I know what I'm gonna hear. They're slimy, they're dangerous, they're just scary. First, they're not slimy at all, that's eels. They're only as dangerous as any other predator, and people love tigers and lions and eagles all over the place. And okay, I'll give you scary. They can certainly be that. Of course, in Western mythology, snakes are often associated with monsters, and monsters are usually connected one way or another to Rhea or Gaia, the Great Mother Earth. Now, when you look at Greek art, if you see someone with a serpent's tail or snakes instead of legs, you're looking at one of Gaia's offspring. The Great Altar of Pergamon, which is now at Berlin, depicts the battle between the gods and the giants, and the giants are depicted, most of them, with snakes for legs. It's absolutely gorgeous and amazing, so if you're ever in Berlin, go see it. Uh, Now, here's where we actually run into one of the most popular conspiracy theories of the ancient Mediterranean and really ancient Western art. It's the idea that all of the myths and all of the legends regarding heroes and gods in ancient Greece and Rome, and therefore to some extent the rest of Europe, are reflections of a political and social revolution where an idealized, and it's almost always idealized, matriarchal culture symbolized by women and snakes, was defeated by an equally stereotypically evil or bad or overpowering or whatever you want to call it, patriarchal one. Now, can we just stop that? (laughs) Polarities in either direction are icky. Yin and yang, masculine and feminine, light and dark, poison, medicine, opposites are necessary and are only good and bad depending on context. Maybe that's why I like snakes so much. They embody all of these contradictions about good and evil and which is what. And how you see them says more about you than it does about them. Alright, mom lecture over. I will get down from my soapbox and we can keep talking about snakes. Snakes and snaky people and what they mean when we see them in European art. Now we were talking about Gaia, or Rhea, and how everything she deals with is sooner or later going to be snakes. Apollo's sanctuary at Delphi didn't always belong to Apollo. First, it was Rhea's, and her sacred snake, the python, lived there. It was always a prophetic oracular space, uh, and we'll get to why in a little while. But Apollo in the Greek pantheon is Rhea's grandson, and she must be the most tolerant grandma ever, because when Apollo decided he wanted the sanctuary for himself, he flew over there, killed the python, and decided to take it over. She's such a good grandma that she didn't even make him suffer too badly for killing her favorite pet. All he had to do was institute games every four years, much like the Olympian games. These were the Pythian games, Uh, But instead of being sports-oriented, the Pythian games were arts-oriented, right? So think of the Olympics, but for song and dance and music and poetry. And theater, of course. That's how Apollo became the god of prophecy. He guarded that position jealously against all comers. He didn't get to play with snakes anymore. He'd killed one. But he nevertheless got the prophecy and sometimes snakes show up. Snakes don't show up with Apollo, but they do show up with his half-sister Athena, the goddess of wisdom. Yeah, I know Athena is owls, right? Sorta. She's really more associated with snakes. Did you know she has a surrogate son? Now that's a story and a half. The Olympian gods can be bullies sometimes, and Hephaestus, the original genius of metal shop, the god of smithing, came in for a lot of it. He was crippled, he was teased, his mother didn't like him much. I mean, there was all sorts of reasons for people to make fun of him. One day, a few of the gods, and my bet is on Ares because Ares was a bullying jerk, uh, he was as much a jerk in the myths as he is in Wonder Woman, as a matter of fact. Uh, Now, The gods decided to play a prank on Hephaestus and tell him that Athena was secretly in love with him. It sounds like the beginning of a plot from some horrible college drama, and that's pretty much how it played out. Hephaestus was too nervous to approach her sober, so he got himself roaring drunk. Once he was well and truly soused, he went in search of Athena, and in the best Olympian tradition, or the worst, he tried to seduce her, and when that didn't work, he tried to rape her. Athena is um, the goddess of war and wisdom, and she wasn't having any of it, so uh, she did manage to throw him off, but before she could do that, he actually ejaculated onto her thigh. In disgust, she flicked the semen onto the ground, right as Rhea, the goddess of the earth, was passing by. Now, Rhea is, of course, the earth, and therefore as fertile as, and so she got pregnant immediately. Some time later, she showed up on Athena's doorstep with a squalling little basket full of baby, hands it over to her, says, I think this is yours, and stomps off in a bit of a huff. (laughs) Now, this is Erechtheon, the first king of Athens. Sometimes he gets depicted with a snake's tail. So if you see a man or a boy with a snake's tail next to Athena, that's who it is. Athena didn't want to bear the kid, but she was perfectly happy being foster mother to him. Now, Erechtheon isn't the only person who is connected with Athena, who has to deal with snakes. Few people today remember Erechtheon, but uh, everybody knows the other one, Medusa. Right? Snaky hair, beautiful face, turns people to stone. Yeah, her. Medusa was actually one of three sisters, the Gorgons, who were all priestesses of Athena. And by the way, Gorgo means brilliant or beautiful eyes, so take that for whatever it's worth. Out of these three sisters, Medusa is the only one who's mortal, And Medusa's the one that catches Poseidon's eye. Now, Poseidon might have been miffed about losing out on the patronage of Athens because Athena snagged it right from under his nose. Or maybe he just thought Medusa was pretty. Or maybe he was just a creep. But he raped Medusa in Athena's temple. Yeah, uh, all of these stories end up being about rape one way or another. Now, Athena finds out about the desecration of her temple, and in a classic example of victim-shaming, turns Medusa and both of her sisters into monsters. She exiles all three of them to the farthest island she can think of, and there the story ends. Or not. Athena's vengeance didn't end there. She waited until an enterprising young man named Perseus decided to make a rotten, stupid bet. Perseus bet his mother's boyfriend that he could bring back Medusa's head as a wedding present. With help from Athena and Hermes and a few other people, Perseus succeeded, and lots of people had to have told that story, so I'm not even going to bother. What I'm interested in is what happened to Medusa. After Perseus chopped off Medusa's head, a miraculous thing happened that people don't talk about much. She gave birth through her severed neck. Her kids? Yeah. Pegasus. The winged flying horse and... Uh, everybody's favorite flying mount. Yeah, that, that Pegasus was born from the severed neck of the goddess with all the snakes for hair who turned people to stone. She also had a son named Chrysaor, which means actually golden scythe. Uh, and he, Chrysaor, was the father or grandfather of almost half of the monsters that Hercules ended up having to fight one way or another. All the snake-like ones anyway. Now, after Medusa died, Athena gathered up her blood, which had really nifty properties. Blood from the right side would heal anything. Blood from the left side would kill anything. And there you have the origin of medicine. Now, images of Medusa show up all over the place. She is the uh, first... her head, her severed head, is the first thing that you see on trips to the underworld. Uh, Her head also shows up on coinage. Uh, She is the mother of horses after all and one of the earliest places where Medusa gets depicted is, uh, at least monumentally, is actually not in association with Athena at all but it's uh, in a temple dedicated to Artemis at Corfu which is kind of fun. Uh, and that's, that's a whole conversation about visual analysis and the ways in which Medusa is depicted, which is something better suited for slideshows. Uh, anyway, so snakes. Uh, medicine, already we're seeing that. We've seen poison, we've seen cure, we've seen turn people to stone, uh, and we've seen prophecy. Now, why do snakes have all of these mythological properties? We don't really have to go searching in bestiaries for this one. Instead, let's go on a hypothetical ramble through snake-infested territory. We could just watch Raiders of the Lost Ark, but for now, let's go on a hypothetical ramble, shall we? I don't feel like watching somebody who looks just like my dad. Seriously, Harrison Ford looks so much like my dad, it's scary. Anyway, rambling. Let's say we are wandering through the Rocky Mountains, because why not, and all of a sudden we hear a rustling, whispering sort of ch- <laughs> and maybe the occasional rattle. And this sound comes right out of the ground. Creepy, right? It sounds a little like whispers coming from the land of the dead. And if you could understand what the whispers were saying, maybe you could know something about the past or the future or things you'd never know otherwise. Ooh. All right, you got brave and decided to take one of these snakes home with you because guess where all that sound was coming from? A big old cavern full of snakes. So, <clears throat> the snake that you bring home with you is your brand new pet is a good snake. It eats all the rats and the mice that were stuffing themselves on all of your grain and pooping all over your food storage. But then, one day, your snake starts looking really unhappy. It gets sluggish and short-tempered, its scales start to dull and its eyes glaze over, and eventually it stops moving altogether. It looks pretty dang dead. next morning when you wake up, you get up, go check on your poor dead snake, and there's nothing left but some old dead skin and a brand new bigger bright and sassy snake. No wonder snakes get associated with living forever, and with protection too, and prophecy. So when did people start thinking that snakes are just evil? Well, You can thank medieval Christianity for that one and all the relief sculptures on all those beautiful Romanesque and Gothic churches, because that's one of the first places where people uh, could go to see mythology or uh, theology being expressed. And so this is one of the fundamental ways that church authorities communicated with the general populace. One of the perfect ways Uh, of dealing with getting rid of the old ways. We've seen in other uh, ways earlier, right? We've already talked a little bit about how medieval Christianity tried to root out uh, demons and devils by associating them with pagan gods. Well, they're going to do the exact same thing with snakes because snakes were most definitely part of the old ways and medieval Europe had a problem with that. The creation story of Genesis is the perfect way to get people thinking that snakes are bad. In the Garden of Eden, everything was perfect and innocent and wonderful for the first humans, Adam and Eve, until the serpent showed up and told Eve that her life was going nowhere fast, and she'd never learn anything worthwhile until she ate the forbidden fruit. Eve decided that knowledge and wisdom were worth it, And so she ate the fruit, fed some of it to Adam, and then, of course, the two of them got kicked out of paradise and into the harsh realities of life as we know it. Now, instead of focusing on the idea that hardship and trials pave the way to knowledge and wisdom, medieval theologians twisted things by saying that if Eve hadn't listened to the serpent, and if Adam hadn't been seduced by Eve, we'd all be living in paradise right now. We'd all be brainless and stupid, but hey, who cares? Paradise, right? And so the serpent, and Eve, and by extension, all snakes and all women, except for the Virgin Mary, who has her own special way of getting out of it, got blamed for all of the problems anyone has ever faced, ever. Thanks, medieval Christianity. We see this in just about every depiction of the Garden of Eden. There's an apple tree in the center, because... apples... Uh, and then on uh, the right is Adam, on the left is Eve, and in the center, twining its way up the tree, is a snake. Sometimes, just to hit home the idea that women are naughty and can't be trusted, the snake is depicted with a woman's head. This isn't Eve, by the way. This is Lilith. And I'm going to climb back on my soapbox for one more second to say that the smartest thing some obnoxious storyteller ever did was to split the primordial woman into two. One, the real first woman who was created equal with Adam and refused to go along with his nonsense, and two, the supposedly submissive wife who became the good little mother of all humanity. I prefer to think of Eve as being just as complex and intriguing a person as any of the women I have ever known. Thank you very much. Powerful and innocent and trusting and curious and strong and humble and, uh, uh, well, anyway. I mean, come on, she's the one that asked for wisdom and knowledge. Hello. You know that in Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, the word for wisdom is feminine? Think about that for a minute. The Garden of Eden aside, there are actually a few more times that snakes appear in the Bible and they don't appear as the bad guy. Generally speaking, they serve the same function in the Bible that they serve in every other culture I can think of. During the time when the people of Israel were following Moses in the wilderness for 40 years, there was one time when God was so irritated with them all that he sent poisonous snakes after them to bite everyone and make them all sick and practically die. Then he told Moses to make a sculpture of a snake out of brass. Or was it bronze? It was some golden-looking metal anyway that would glow like blazes when the sun hit it. Make it look all kinds of sunshiny and supernatural. Anyway, Moses is supposed to make this brazen serpent and put it up on a stick in the middle of camp. Anyone who looked at the sculpture would be healed. Yep, here we see yet another example of the combined powers of the snake. Death dealing on the one hand, healing on the other. And here too is an example of affective art, or art that changes the real world when you interact with it. All people had to do was look at the sculpture and they'd be healed of the poison. Some of them did, many of them didn't. In the New Testament, there's a point where one of the apostles ends up on the wrong side of a poisonous snake. The venom, however, doesn't harm him one little bit, and this becomes evidence of his divinely inspired mission, and thus of the divinity of Christ. Once again, serpents as a divine tool for showing approval and disapproval. Snakes serve the same role in just about every culture I can think of. In one story about the Buddha, the cobra spreads its hood to protect him from the sun in the middle of the day. Uh, In one of my favorite classic Bollywood movies, the bad guy is stopped from going after the good old blind mother by the sudden appearance of a cobra in the middle of the road, who drops down and looks up at him menacingly, and of course the bad guy and his henchmen run off in fear. Oh, and we can't forget Mesoamerica. There is a fantastic sculpture of Quetzalcoatl in Mexico City found... Um, it was found in, during an excavation that was sort of accidentally on purpose. Anyway, it's a human torso that has snakes coming out of the neck and the arms and the legs. Now in Mayan art, snakes are often visual metaphors for blood. But the reason behind the blood, blood feeds creation and the gods. Without it, the gods die and life ends. So snakes, blood, divinity, that connection, still there. I can't... End this podcast without the Ouroboros, the serpent who grabs its own tail. Uh, fans of North of Norse mythology will immediately think of the Midgard serpent, that great monster that will eventually kill Thor during Ragnarok. Don't worry, Thor kills it too. But you know, the two of them kill each other off. <clears throat> However, the Ouroboros is a lot older than Norse mythology. As a metaphor for the cycle of creation and destruction, it shows up in magical amulets pretty much all over the place, often as a means of protecting women from various ailments that until relatively recently, until like the 20th century, were attributed to, you're going to love this one, wandering womb, as if the uterus could detach itself and go on a road trip through a woman's body making trouble. Ah, the connections between snakes and women. It never ends. This has been an episode of Pieces of Art, a podcast about ancient art, modern art, and everything in between. Thanks for listening.